0: We're going to go ahead and get started. I know we're a little bit late on time and we will have this session go until 11:20 to make sure that everyone still has time for lunch, which means we don't have a lot of time. So I want to go ahead and get started because we have such a great, well to me, a passion a, a topic that I'm very passionate about and such a great a great panel of speakers. My name is Kimberly Flowers and I'm the Director of Global Food Security here at CSIS. And just to start off with, as the number one defense tank in the world, we take security very seriously. So not that we expect any issues, but if there are any issues, I am your security officer. So today, today meaning Global Development Forum, we're looking at development trends. And anyone who's been watching development and global food security issues in the last few years knows it's been quite a fascinating ride. From the food price spikes that happened in 07 and 08, there were documented at least 30 different riots around the world and other civil unrest related to that. And that really sparked uh, renewed interest by the US government as well as the international community to understand better the linkages between food insecurity and political instability. And after decades of decline, the US government and others started to reinvest back into agricultural development. The Obama administration alone has invested over $5.6 billion just in its presidential initiative called Feed the Future. Um, That doesn't include other elements of food security that people think of when they think of food aid or other humanitarian assistance. And when you think about where we are right now in development related to the sustainable development goals, some people could argue that 15 of the 17 development goals could be related back to food security in some way. And I want to talk a little before we really dive in of what we mean in this panel on global food security. We're not talking about food aid or food aid reform or farm bill or really even humanitarian assistance. What we're zeroed in on today is talking about long-term agricultural development. And so that's a variety of aspects from working with smallholder farmers around the world to teach them better practices, raise their income, catalyze markets. It's also about nutrition, particularly in the first thousand days. So it's a host of things, but what's different about specifically Feed the Future and the US government's focus now compared to before is really zeroing in on the root causes of hunger and poverty. And I think a lot of times people don't quite know the power of agriculture. A lot of you in this room do because you've been working on it for a long time. But what's really special about agriculture is its economic leverage. When you look at agriculture, it's the primary source of employment for 70% of the world's poor. And it contributes to one-third of the GDP in many of the least developing countries. And we know that GDP growth in ag can be four times as effective as growth in raising income, as, sorry, as growth in other sectors as far as raising incomes. So if agricultural development has some serious economic power behind it. We also know that there, it has some serious national security power, or I don't think that's, I, I think because of the, the food price crisis and the civil unrest we saw in those days, is why the US government, as well as others, are reinvesting in this sector. It's also important to remember that agriculture is a business. When I think about smallholder farmers, that woman, that man, to me, they're already a businesswoman or businessman, but they're also an entrepreneur, because it's all about raising their income, it's linking to markets. And we're not gonna talk about today specifically of is the private sector important and private sector partnerships. Everyone here, well, we know that, and most of you do too. Um, And why that's an interesting conversation to have, particularly to think of how the US government has been engaging the private sector in different ways and how that relates to technology or how that relates to different models of partnerships that are successful or not. That's not really what our focus is on today. What we're gonna be talking about is more about the power of policy, about the laws and regulations on the country level and how that can both inhibit and entice private sector engagement. You know, anyone again who's been engaged in this knows that agriculture is incredibly complex. There's a lot of different layers that have to come together in order for there to be an agricultural transformation. So that's everything from better seeds better market linkages, um, better information, technology, and we could go on and on. But another element of that is around policy. And, and I found that I think the policy environment, that enabling environment, those words, um, it's often not very well understood. It's kind of difficult to measure success, and it can be really challenging to enforce. You can have one thing on paper, but then actually implementing it is, is quite challenging. And the private sector can't really be a true partner in agriculture unless there's the right kind of enabling environment there for them. So that's, where, that's what, our, what we're gonna be talking about in this dialogue today. We have such a great panel from implementing partners to US government leadership to country level leadership to representatives of the private sector. Um, so I really wanna to turn to them. And I'd like to turn things on its head a little bit. So instead of ladies first, we will start with men first. <laughs> so, those pictures of you know, all-male panels. Take a picture of this. Nate is my token male. <laughs> no, Nate is actually the reason I blame him often for my love of policy because uh, working with him before I took this job and, and the work that he's done at FinTrack around enabling environments is part of why I have better understood the importance of policy. So, Nate, to start with, What are we talking about? What is an enabling environment? And why is it so important?
1: Well, thanks, Kimberly. Uh, I may be biased, but I think this is a really critical topic. Uh, So (laughs) thank you very much for the opportunity to to speak on it. Um, So within food systems, the way that we tend to define the enabling environment is that it's the the set of formal and informal rules and institutions that shape the incentives that that impact behavior of um, agricultural market participants. Smallholder farmers, input providers, food processors, distributors, even consumers. And intuitively, this makes sense that it makes sense that the rules of the game would impact not only decisions and behaviors, and, and if you will, how you play the game, but also the outcomes um, and, and the extent to which uh, agricultural markets and, uh, and interventions really are geared towards achieving a lasting, lasting impact. Um, you know, things like timely and valid market information, um, legal and institutional public goods like enforceable contracts, secure property rights, um, relatively free and open trading systems, uh, competition policy enforcement. Um, each of these things, uh, when properly enforced, can, uh, can have some really um, impactful outcomes. They can open up finance, they can facilitate market linkages that uh, can improve cross-border trade, um, and decrease consumer prices. Conversely, a poor enabling environment can create a double negative impact on food security. Uh, raising the costs for consumers while also cutting into the razor thin margins that smallholder producers, uh, larger scale producers, processors uh, actually take home. Uh, so you know, firms throughout the agricultural market system are directly impacted by what the rules say and how they're enforced. And it's funny, Kimberly, you talked about um, uh, you talked about uh, the, the difference between the laws that are on the books and the laws that are implemented. A mentor of mine, um, who uh, is also an employee of USA, talks about how there are really four sets of laws for every, for every law that's on the books. There's the law they meant to write, uh, there's the law they wrote, there's the law they enforce, and then there's the law that everybody actually uh, believes in their day-to-day transactions and actually incorporates, <laughs> and, and figuring out how you navigate that complex system is an extraordinary. Challenge both for policymakers and for uh, 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 donor agencies, and for, uh, uh, with humility, consultants that try to offer comparable evidence to help inform the dialogue. Okay. So it's uh, uh, it's it's not an easy topic, and it, it is challenging to uh, to try to try to capture and define impact. But I think it's it's a challenge that is really quite critical, and it's exciting to see um, that there is a lot of headway now and a lot of momentum in trying to uh, undertake some reforms. So. Um, I thought I would just go over just a couple of, of examples of what we're talking about when we're talking about enabling environment and, and some sub-themes that, that I think will really give it some concrete uh, definition. So one of the, the sub-themes that I bring up is that um, burdensome regul- regulatory processes can restrict private sector investment. Now, I mean, in some respects that, that does seem intuitive, but, uh, but it's nice to have a little bit of, of evidence and data to reinforce that, that, uh, uh, that relative truism. Um, So smart regulations implemented by qualified and capable governmental staff can clear the path for greater private sector engagement. Um, Overly restrictive or burdensome regulatory regulatory processes can affect time to market for, for example, new seed varieties, um, which can limit return on investment, delay benefit to farmers for accessing new varieties, and ultimately discourage private sector involvement. In uh, 2013, 2014, our project uh, had the opportunity to conduct some research into seed uh, seed registration processes in Bangladesh and and Nepal. Uh, And some of the findings that we thought were really quite quite interesting. Um, So so the uh, seed registration process in Bangladesh is considerably faster and less expensive than in Nepal. uh, uh, 30% faster and 60, 68% less, uh, less expensive to register a new seed variety in Bangladesh than Nepal. And you, you tend to see um, a correlation between that and the quantity of private sector new seed varieties introduced on market three times the number of seed varieties are introduced uh, by private sector players in, uh, annually in uh, Bangladesh than Nepal. So you begin to see, not necessarily a causal link, but at least a correlation over time when you look at time series data. Uh, you do begin to see a correlation between the relative burden of regulation and the and the um, return on investment and the ultimate impact on the seed sector. Another, another point I wanted to, to bring up. Property and contract systems have a statistically significant impact on lending. So when we talk about agricultural finance, and we, you know, you you always tend to hear that, oh, you know, agricultural finance um, is oftentimes uh, prohibitively expensive, cost of capital is too high, terms are too, you know, maturity terms are too low, they don't last the full um, harvest cycle. Well, as it turns out, uh, there's been some, I think, relatively groundbreaking research uh, that's been done that, that look at some of the factors that, that drive the cost of capital and um, commercial lending terms and increasingly things like creditors' rights um, under bankruptcy provisions, um, contra- the strength of, of contracts enforcement and the strength of property rights have a clear, um, a clear positive impact on, uh, on uh, lending terms uh, and have a large order of magnitude impact. Um, So, beginning to kind of understand, well, how these uh, somewhat abstract concepts really tie into some of these key inputs that are quite critical to the agricultural sector development, I think really starts to give some meat to this topic. Uh, Final sub-point I wanted to to mention was that Regulatory systems can have unintended direct consequences on (coughs) access to food. Uh, A lot of times uh, in our work um, under previous programs, we've focused primarily on the impact on production and maybe on market linkages, but we haven't perhaps always focused as much on the access question. And uh, there is a a really um, interesting case study that that came out in uh, Mexico, in Chiapas State, where um, a, uh, uh, where an enabling environment had real direct consequences on retail food prices, uh, urban retail food prices. Um, so in Mexico, uh, in Chiapas State, there was a, a municipal licensing scheme for tortilla sellers uh, that essentially had, had the impact that it created certain jurisdictions for where you could sell your tortillas and it had an impact that it, it uh, essentially created mini monopolies um, on tortilla retailers. And this scheme ended up having a 40% um, spike in the price of tortillas, which, if you're living in Chiapas state, it's a, a staple crop. And the cost of this is particularly borne on the, the least food secure, um, poorest segments of society. So, I mean, the, I guess the, the sum total point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, as we approach these topics, we talk about contracts, talk about property, competition policy, there are very real consequences to some of these abstract topics. And uh, and so, um, you know, I think I'm going to, to perhaps leave it at that, uh, just provide a little bit of this evidence. and. You know, there are a lot of topics you really can't cover in a short period of time. Things like you know, gender inclusivity, regional market integration. There's so much that I hope we can discuss. But uh, looking at the time, I'll just uh, yield at this point. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nate. I particularly like the access to food point because you know, as we think about how we're going to increase production to feed a global demand, a growing population with limited resources, you know, it's not always about food availability. It's really about access and distribution. And it's interesting how a nuanced thing like this that's so not understood can have such real consequences, like you said. Um, let's turn to Pat. Pat, you're Pat's the director of agribusiness at the Corporal Council in Africa. So she works a lot um, with speaking for the private sector voice. Um, And even in your last previous life with USDA, your understanding of trade and how it's all interconnected, interconnected, tell us about how country level laws and regulations, like what Nate was talking about, how does that affect the private sector? And what role does the private sector play in agriculture transformation? Why is it so critical that that they be engaged?
2: Okay, thank you. Kimberly, I wanna thank you and Caitlin and Dr. Siddiqui and the rest of the CSIS staff for inviting me on this very important panel. I just wanna say a little bit first about the Corporate Council in Africa because I want you to know that, uh, just to get a feel for the organization. It's an organization that represents about 80% of total U.S. trade and investment in Africa and uh, of of U.S. companies and also of African companies. About 20% of our membership are African companies. So we're not just looking at the U.S. viewpoint, we're also looking at the uh, African private sector viewpoint and that 20% uh, level is growing. So uh, I also like your point with respect to uh, uh, the impact that ag- that agriculture can have on GDP. I think that's quite uh, misunderstood and not appreciated at times because it could be the fastest, fastest accelerator of growth in the country. So. Um, the, the private sector is really, in my viewpoint, the only sector that can in, uh, ensure long-term economic sustainability. We talk about all kinds of sustainability, but it's the economic sustainability that I'm referring to. And so they're a critical part of this equation. Uh, the, government, um, it, uh, the government and respective countries play a very important role also. Uh, but I, th- I think that if the government of, of countries treat agriculture as a business and it has not always been treated as a business then you will see policies with regard to taxes and investment policies and standards and regulations uh, and what we call the enabling environment uh, going in the right direction but it's got to be a whole mindset that this is not a hobby this is a business and uh, agriculture has to be treated as such as such and then I think you'll see that women and young people that are, uh, that can play a role and it may not be in the production side of it because agriculture needs, as you said, it's a very complex field. It needs um, all kinds of players involved in the whole value chain. So, you know, and when I speak of the value chain, I'm talking about the value chain starting with the production, moving into the processing, and then the distribution of that particular uh, commodity to a consumer, whether it be a local, a regional, or an international consumer. So that's a whole lot of players along that value chain. And uh, as you use the word, I think it's very apropos, complex. It is a complex business. It requires um, a lot of players. You may uh, not think of this, but it requires academia. If there's a problem with disease and pests, it's the academic community that we're going to go to. We need technology and innovation. And in this case, Africa has an enormous opportunity to jumpstart and use technology and innovation and avoid some of the mistakes that uh, developed countries have uh, unfortunately had to deal with. You have the US government and other governments involved in this sector. You have the NGO community. Um, and so, um, and then you have the private sector itself. So you have a lot of players in this uh, sector. Here. And you also have a lot of players with respect to different sectors. You have to have, um, as I said before, science. You need technology if you're going to have a modern system. You need infrastructure. And infrastructure is key. If you, if you produce, you can produce uh, as many commodities as you want. But if you can't move that commodity from the farm to the processing center, then the game is over. So, so infrastructure and energy, you need help. You wanna make sure that those workers are healthy. They're an economic asset. Again, think of what I said as treating agriculture as a business. So, um, you know, you need all of these regulations that cover all of these sectors. And finally, and most important, you need um, regulations with respect to, and policies with respect to the community. The community is part of that environment, if you're going to really look at it. And if you have community involvement and community support, then you, have a st- you stand a better chance of having agriculture um, uh, be productive and successful. And uh, the, when, when companies look at agriculture, they're looking at um, the aggregation of the smallholder farmers also. Because they cannot create economies of scale without some way of aggregating these small-scale farmers. And I often, my previous days of dealing with China for 20 years, I often look at back at China's agricultural transformation. And starting in the 80s, if you were to travel, it's different now, but if you were to travel throughout the North China Plain, where many of these uh, farmers are in China, uh, you would see huge tracts of land. You would think you were in the United States, but you were in China. But these were individual plots that were being farmed, but they were being farmed in a collective or in a a cooperative manner. I don't like to use that term for Africa. It has a bad connotation. But somehow, you've got to aggregate these farmers to create economies of scale. And then, if you um, take it a step further, uh, businesses will be attracted to regional integration. Because now you may have a market not only where an individual country, you may have had 60 million people. Now you may have a market of 340 million people. And so that is an attraction for business. And so this regional integration that the African um, uh, Union is trying to create in the Continental Free Trade Agreement is very, very important, those policies that they play. And, uh, and, all, and then finally, I'd like to say that, that if you're looking at a market-oriented system, the government has to ensure that these products don't come to the market all at the same time depressing prices and then you have uh, This is just there's a way that you can do it. It has to be a market driven approach to uh, To agribusiness let me conclude because there are a lot more things I can say But let me conclude by just giving you a few examples because you may think oh It's just the big guys the big companies that are playing in this field and uh, Yes, they are but they're also smaller companies And I just want to give you a few examples and how the the complex relationships that they have in this field Uh, Coke, that is a big company. Okay, but you might be surprised that in there, I'm giving you examples of our member organizations, by the way. Uh, They um, are involved in better better management practices. They use agricultural products. They use water. They want to make sure the water quality is good. And Coke doesn't know all this stuff, so they have to partner with uh, others. And sometimes they partner with uh, uh, the nonprofit organizations and and folks that understand how to organize farmers. So this is very, very important. Uh, Chevron. Uh, Chevron is an oil company, but Chevron is uh, committed to the community, and so they get involved in areas like the Niger Delta. You don't have to have a perfect economic situation. There are problems in the Niger Delta, but they're there. They were in Angola, and they still are in Angola after the war. Okay, let me turn to a smaller company, Acro Bridges. They're a member of uh, CCA, and uh, they had built feeder roads in the Cameroon. But the feeder roads weren't for agriculture per se, but the agricultural sector uh, is using those feeder roads to get their products out. Okay, Vital Capital. This is a, a company that belongs to CCA, and they're an impact investment firm, and they are involved in agricultural production in Angola. And they take what I call a holistic approach, making sure not only that agricultural productivity is increased <coughs> and the farmers are getting a decent return for their money, but also they're uh, making sure that the community is being served with social programs, with health programs, and education programs. And finally, International Green Structures. Uh, they're uh, another comp- uh, member company of our organization. They build affordable housing. They have built affordable housing both in the urban sector in Kenya and also uh, they're looking at the rural sector. Uh, that's important, where are people going to live? So, um, uh, in conclusion, I want to say that indeed the, agri- uh, the agribusiness sector has a critical role to play in long-term economic su- sustainability, but they need countries to have a business approach or at least leaning in that direction in order to come in and they need for countries to create market-oriented policies that they can begin to work with and have some impact on economic sustainability.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Pat. I really liked, I meant to bring this up in my opening statement as well as the emphasis on, on local as well as big multinational because when we talk about private sector, we aren't just talking about the big five agribusinesses. We're talking about the local input supplier as much as the people who are engaged in exports and trade, um, and that's that's really important. I also thank you for bringing up infrastructure. You know, no matter what topic we bring up in agriculture, infrastructure and technology are two things that are that are critical to the discussion. Next, we're going to move to Beth. Uh, Beth is the deputy coordinator for Feed the Future at USAID. And what I, what I like about Beth, besides the fact that I just like her, but she she really has a, a holistic perspective when it comes to Feed the Future because she's been a mission director. She just came back from Nepal most recently as the USAID mission director. She was in the Bureau for Food Security from the very earliest days, but she also has a background working with Food for Peace and from the humanitarian angle. So she's a development practitioner who really understands this. And Beth, my question, of course, is you know when you look at the United States, it's working with with host country governments um, on a variety of levels you know to be a feed the future focused country you had to meet certain requirements and I'm curious of how does policy reform fit into the feed the future portfolio and and what are you doing in feed the future that's related to policy
3: well thanks Kimberly uh, uh, for that nice introduction also for this topic I think it's a really critical one I think uh, when we stood up Feed the Future, we knew that donor investment alone was not going to be able to tackle the problem of global food insecurity. Um, and even today, even more, as development budgets are increasingly constrained with competing priorities, uh, the global uh, needs for food are increasing. Um, it's becoming more and more difficult, and we know that we need partners. So we know that we cannot succeed without the commitment, leadership, and work of host country governments. Uh, The the amount of resources that host countries are putting into food security uh, far um, outstrips anything that donors put in. Um, We know that we need uh, the private sector. We cannot succeed without the private sector. It's the private sector that's going to have the long-term sustainability of the markets, um, the value chains, and really uh, vitalize these sectors. Uh, we also need c- civil society groups that really ensure the transparency, um, work to um, ensure an inclusive agenda and protect the rights of vulnerable groups. So I guess the fir- I wanna go back again to the first partner that I mentioned, which was really needing the leadership of host country governments. Um, it's this leadership that sets the frame for everything else that we do and really is the su- success or failure of what we do to impact food security. Um, <clears throat> they help, as Nate points out, create the enabling environments, allowing our investments to take root, and they also create the space and opportunity for civil society to flourish to really engage in the discussion. So through Feed the Future, we really spend a lot of time uh, working with governments uh, to um, help foster and facilitate their leadership in this effort um, around policies, also making sure that Um, working with governments as they increase their investments in agriculture that they're investing in the right things and things that are inherently public goods such as infrastructures you raise such as um, research that's really really important and um, really promoting things like transparent spending plans so we can actually see what what they're spending it on how we can support those broader efforts so one of the ways that we in feed the future really uh, work to advance this agenda is um, through our support the initiative of the new alliance for food security and Nutrition. And what this does is it brings together international donors, <clears throat> host governments, civil society, and the private sector around country-driven plans that incorporate commitments uh, that really the comparative advantage from each, each of these groups to push forward a country's um, agenda in food security. So um, this, uh, th- these efforts support um, agricult- uh, responsible private sector investment, which is ensuring the sustainable growth um, sustainable and long-term inclusive economic growth so to date these multi-stakeholder partnerships have leveraged um, more than 10 billion dollars in commitments from the private sector in africa Um, to date 2 billion of these uh, commitments have been realized and this has reached uh, 8.2 million farmers really um, game-changing in their lives Uh, the 10 african governments that are part of the new alliance for food security and nutrition have committed to policy commitments um, many of which have already been completed and many are in process that are really changing uh, the landscape of food security in many of these countries. And then the development community <clears throat> also came through with commitments and have invested $2.3 billion to support these country-led um, uh, platforms, uh, which is 85% of what was committed. So that's very significant in and of itself. So. Uh, These concrete commitments are very important, but I think one of the most important things that's come out of this is the increased dialogue between these diverse actors coming to the table to support a common agenda, which is something that we didn't see enough of before, and I think just getting people to say, hey, here's a common problem. How do we come together with our different capabilities to support this effort is really important? Um, I also wanted to give a couple of examples. Um, Senegal, for example. It's a place where private sector had been Uh, pretty much stagnant and one of the one very very important reason was the fact that uh, you couldn't really find uh, reliable uh, seeds uh, improved seeds in the country and so it was a really really big problem so in 2013 as part of the new alliance commitments the government of Senegal passed a new law um, creating new standards for seed certification and these new seed certifications were in line with the regional ECOWAS the regional body in West Africa in line with their seed certification so what it did is it really just opened up senegal to the broader west africa market market which is quite vibrant in seeds and then more and more private sector was able to sort of stand up in senegal with access to a broader market or come in from other countries and really what you saw was um lowered uh, development transaction costs and you're seeing certified seeds appear all uh, all over the place and so um Let's see, what we did is, so Feed the Future then supports this effort on policy reform. Um, We funded seed labs within Senegal, entered into agreements to establish private seed processing centers in Senegal, and then also trained community farmers as certified seed producers themselves for new varieties such as, you know, the famous Nureka, the new African rice, um, which has three times as great a yield as regular rice and also is drought resistant. we saw that last year, right? So this in 2013 is when Senegal um, uh, put in place these new regulations. We saw that last year that 10,000 metric tons, uh, this private sector, sorry, driven seed system, um, disseminated 10,000 metric tons of improved seed varieties in rice, um, maize, and sorghum, rice, maize, and millet, sorry. And so this this meets the needs of 180,000 smallholder farmers who now have access to seeds that improve their yields and increase their resilience to, to drought. So I think that this is a real impact that we see on the ground. Um, one more example, um, I think that I'll close with is um, in, in Guatemala, we uh, work with um, smallholders uh, on, on horticulture. And really, we were, we were looking to see sort of, okay, what are the barriers to growth in the sector? And working with the Government of Guatemala, we come to to find out that actually uh, the use of pesticides leaves enough pesticide residue on the horticulture on the products that they're actually refused entry to the United States, of course the huge, huge market to the north. And so, what we did is we we did an analysis of what we could do to to change this and the government put in place some regulations for stronger pesticide uh, control. And then We supported this effort by working with farmers to help them practice good pesticide use and management. We worked with testing facilities um, and able to implement the new standards, and then importantly, worked with the national laboratory so they could become a certified tester for um, pesticide residue that would be accepted in the states. And so what you saw, because of these efforts, the rejection of containers full of horticulture uh, at the US border, the rejection of Guatemalan containers went from 1,000 containers rejected in 2008 to less than 100 in 2010. So very quickly, these types of regulations supported by some technical support can make a dramatic impact. And what we saw with the farmers that we were working with is that their incomes went up by 38%. And that is the kind of impact I think we're seeking and that we can't see with effective policy reform. Thank you, Beth.
0: I particularly like your point on the host country leadership has to set the frame, because that's a perfect transition to move to Agnes Kilabata. Agnes has been a former ag minister in Rwanda, and she now leads the Agra Foundation, which I'm sure she could tell us a bit more about. And as you can imagine, you're really the host country voice here. So talk to us about the challenges, the successes of how this actually looks on the ground and with country leadership so that we can have an agricultural transformation.
4: Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so I would love to start from where you just stopped, but let me, let me just back up a little bit and talk about what I, I look at as good news coming from the continent. And, and uh, the good news is that this recognition of the role of adopting policies to ensure that agriculture starts moving. There's also recognition of the need to invest to ensure that these policies lead to the outcome that we'd like to see. The not-so-good news is okay. that we are still living in a political, a very archaic and old political architecture that is not allowing any of these movements to happen. That we also don't have capacities to be able to move that quickly enough that we probably to legitimize re- what we do even me in my previous role as the minister to re- to legitimize my job i'm not going to accept help sitting down you know mm-hmm. <laughs> you, ca- you come you coming back and you coming to my office and telling me oh i think you need help here and there i'm going to tell you so who do you think you are you mm-hmm. know i'm the minister here i must know what i'm doing you know so, so there's that Lack real lack of capacity to be able to move some of these policies, and 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 have the evidence that needs that one needs to be able to move policies, but also then standing your ground and saying you know what if we are going to lead these countries we need to be legit you know to legitimize our positions by saying we can do it you know even though it actually needs very. good abilities and capacities to be able to develop these processes that we don't have. Okay. So there's going to be real need for partnerships, but some are, some other failures that I see is failure to recognize the increasing role of the private sector and provide that room so that the private sector can become a key player. It's, it's changing in places, but it's n- not always the case. And uh, then the lengthy uh, process of policy reform, even when it gets identified, it takes like forever to be able to reform a Pro- policy and then the inability to enforce policies when we have them changed and to have institutions that will match those policies that are put in place because policies are not enough in themselves they have to have a, appropriate regulatory instruments to ensure that they happen right so the inability to put these instruments in place becomes a very very serious challenge and most people know that already so there's that if if I was to the, the way I look at the from an agro perspective, the way I look at the continuum of things you need to do to get agriculture moving, even when you have investments, probably our weakest point because we are always as strong as our weakest point. Our weakest point is going to be policy. It's going to be policy. It's not technologies. It's not in access to input systems. It's not whatever. It's going to be policy and how we set up mechanisms to uh, to drive policies in these countries. So, but there, there's been real uh, good examples and leadership on the continent that shows that it's doable. Some countries have taken on the challenge and started working on policies that will ensure that they are, that they are driving food security and nutritional security. You're seeing this in a few countries. Um, in 2003, between 2003 and 2007, when countries decided they would drive the cut agenda, about five countries Six countries immediately started putting more than 10% of their budgets in agriculture. For these countries, actually, they've been able to increase agriculture, uh, the growth in agriculture faster than their populations are growing. And three of them have even had reductions in poverty that are related to what has happened in the agriculture sector. So there's evidence that if the right things are done, if the right policies are moved, then actually growth does happen. And mm-hmm. by the way, in some of the poor countries it's eleven times, not even four times, eleven yes, it's times after, absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Eleven times the growth in agriculture is eleven times as impactful mm-hmm. as growth in any other sector. So there's evidence mm-hmm. of what can be done. But it's hard work. The mm-hmm. hardest part of this work I've realised, I've come to realise, is around institutional building. Mm-hmm. You know. The, the policy reform is one thing, but the building of institutions and coming through a lot of institutions is just so difficult. It's so difficult. And it's not what we are culturally, you know, we, we don't have that in, in you know, that's not we, we do. I mean, we, before you institutionalize certain things, there's always the, the tendency to find shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And we're still, you know, in one way or another trying to find that by, You know, we are still in the shortcut era. We are not yet in the the strengthening institutions era. One country that has worked extremely hard to build, but also has been known for reforming institutions so fast is Rwanda. I mean, there's this joke around institutions reforming faster than they are formed. You know, an institution is formed before it takes it's being reformed. Then before it takes feet, it's being reformed. And th- that really shows you the urgency and the need that the country is trying to put in to try to understand what is right. But also Rwanda is known for being able to learn from its mistakes and trying to strengthen the next steps going forward. So there's real success in, in a few countries here and there that we can learn from. But I think the next important thing then goes to what you said around private sector and building sustainability systems. The, ne- the most important thing is not what we are going to do as governments, the most important thing is is the kind of policies we put in place to ensure that private sector does establish itself and does become the drive of businesses because Africa has made several false starts, and I call them false starts because every time you go back then you, know, you actually, that means you didn't succeed. And the reason that has been the case is because private sector never really got to establish the right way. Mm-hmm. So in, now in Agra, one of the things we are looking at is how do you find some of these countries? How do you work with some of these countries that are really committed to, re- to reforms, whether they are working with USAID and other institutions, but very committed to reforms, and support them through that process, whether it is improving coordination systems in the country, whether it is in improving. Evidence and policy, and and whether it is improving advocacy and generating policy from, I mean, generating evidence from other countries and using it as an opportunity for them to learn. How do you use this and strengthen their the, what they are doing and where they are going? This is some of the things that we are trying to see a role that is is going to strengthen uh, the role of policy and 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 how it plays on the continent. Then, how do you ensure that private sector, there are good pra- practices from within the continent that show how private sector can be a key player in what we're doing. How do you ensure that these lessons are being passed along? And how do you ensure that the regulatory instruments that are needed are being put in place, whether the country has the capacity or is you supporting the existence of those capacities? So there are real opportunities here, and uh, I think there's forward movement. The most important thing is there's recognition that there's a need for policy change, there is recognition that there's a need for investment in policy change, and there's recognition that private sector and reforming to ensure that private sector becomes a key player is going to be the way to go in the future. So it's just taking longer. It's uh, difficult in some cases, but the, the movement is, is more forward than backward. Excellent,
0: thank you so much. It is more difficult difficult than you know for me not to ask my wonderful questions to them because I have a lot I want to talk about, whether it's the Global Food Security Act or the World Bank's Enabling Business and agriculture, because those are some of the things that we're following closely here. But in the interest of time, so that we can wrap up at 11.20, I'd like to turn to the audience and and do one round of questions. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Um, We have mics that will come around. I will ask that you introduce yourself and kind of where, where you're coming from, so that we know who you are, and to keep your questions, comments very brief, since we do have a limited time. We'll have Catherine in the front right here. Raise your
5: hands high so I can see you all, okay. Hi, should I go ahead? Yes, go ahead, Um, Catherine. Good morning and thank you. This was a fantastic discussion and I wish we could continue this all day because I think there's so much more that we could talk about. I'm Catherine Kuhlman. I run a nonprofit organization called the New Markets Lab and I manage a team of lawyers from around the world most of them from Sub-Saharan Africa, representing all of the different regions. I wanted to ask a quick question about the regional, just to follow up, and then also bring this to the international level too, because I think that when we think about policy, it is a very interconnected system, and as markets expand and global value chains become more interconnected, I think that we really do need to focus very much, and I appreciate the focus of the panel, on the country level, because I think everything starts and stops there. But as we think about what's happening at the country level, how does that interconnect with some of the regional policies and the international policies? So, my question on the regional is Beth, I appreciate very much your example of ECOWAS, and I think that going into a very concrete example like that is really, really helpful. How do we think about broader regional harmonization within Africa? Pat, I think, mentioned um, the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is still very much an aspiration, but how do we start to get there? We've looked at the differences between all of these different different regional agreements, and there are some things that will have to be worked through. So what do you all think about that, very briefly? And then at the international level, for example, what is happening at the World Trade Organization? How does that impact um, the policy decisions that are being made within countries? Um, Everything from the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which is a relatively new agreement that will impact cross-border trade and hopefully improve the time that it takes to things like sanitary and phytosanitary standards. So thank you again very much.
0: Thank you so much. We'll go right here, the man in the green shirt. Mm-hmm.
6: Hi, thanks. Uh, your question was a good segue to mine. Um, I'm Gary Merritt, uh, ex-USAID. When I left uh, West Africa in, um, it was 1999, after t- some 20 years there, there uh, we had been participating with. Uh, a few governments in West Africa, part of the CFA zone, with the French and it, with ECOWAS uh, people, on a regional plan for West Africa, uh, and it was labeled uh, 2020, and uh, it was sketching some very ambitious infrastructure prerequisites that we felt we had identified. And uh, the question I have for you is policies, yes, absolutely. But infrastructure, namely highways and rail, uh, were identified at the time as key constraints for regional market uh, promotions, if you will. And the same thing was true in East Africa uh, from an earlier period. So many of these issues, identifying policy reform uh, prerequisites and private sector, yay. That was actually already there for the most part in the late 90s in thinking, forward thinking. Well, what's happening uh, with regional infrastructure investment with respect to fundamentals like roads and railway?
0: Great. I'm going to take a break there because that's a good response. We have two regional, then we'll have time for one more round of questions, we hope. I'll just open it to you guys. Who, who would like to begin to start talking about regional harmonization, regional infrastructure issues, investments? Anybody? Nate, are you looking, or was sure. that, no? Or, oh, I, <laughs> I thought that was a absolute, yes, no, if not, no, if not Bethany, I'm happy go ahead. i okay. I may <laughs> pass
1: on the infrastructure question. Uh, I, I, um, and I'll, uh, I'll um, let others respond to that. But uh, the one observation I'd make um, in response to Catherine's question, um, Uh, is that, you know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, commitments can be entered into multilaterally, regionally, but at the end of the day, I I, I keep going back to, to, I think, Agnes's point that, you know, there is a capacity constraint and the capacity, I mean, commitments are entered into regionally, but they're implemented locally, no matter what sort of commitment you're talking about. And so the the capability that you have, it, it creates a, or pardon me, the capacity that you have creates a frontier Uh, to the extent to which you can actually have a a multilateral or regional system that actually stands up in practice. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great examples of of, um, clear support for a regional approach. Uh, You know, if you look at at the, um, you know, the seed harmonization across Comesa and and SADC, that's, you know, taken a little bit of time, but now it's really seems to be kicking into gear. You know, there's a a lot of support, but, you know, you can't get past that that, that key limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Sure,
0: how about all three, but we'll do it really yeah, short. We'll just go this way, Pat, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just I thought about the regional integration and I thought about the European Union and even the, the uh, NAFTA agreement that we have with Mexico and Canada. Anytime you're in a regional body and you're all producing the same commodities and there may be one player or two players that are real fire powerhouses in, 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 the, in the region, uh, it creates tension. And that's not a bad thing, but you know, uh, Africa is no different from the rest of the world. The European Union, when they expanded from 15 to 25, whatever it is, 26, they had the same problem with everybody producing the same thing. So you, uh, uh, so there are natural tensions within those bodies that you have to work out. We have to work those things out with our NAFTA partners, Canada and uh, Mexico. And so I think that it's not unnatural that it's taking some time and how you're talking about even, uh, you know, people who have less capacity. and. And a, a lot of, uh, of, of getting together that they have to do. So I, I'm not surprised, but they're moving in the right direction.
0: Great, Agnes, and then Beth, yeah. and so the infrastructure yeah. question as
4: well. So some oh, of the challenges that I see has to do with um, the whole idea of this, <gasps> these individual countries and their own sovereignty, and you know, trying to have country identification. You know, what is important for me and what is driving integration has to be at the core of this. So until individual countries start understanding the big picture, which is the market size, and and be able to move above that and understand the interconnectedness and the value of coming together as a 200 million million people population, than uh, an 11 or 20 million people population. Until that happens, we will not have tangible movements around integration. And you get the sense that individual countries are still trying to find themselves. Right? Recognizing that policy and capacities around policies are major issues. So, wh- when we do overcome that, when we do overcome our ability to make policies that are, are addressing the bigger issues in terms of the market that we draw ourselves, in terms of our ability to compete and finding the positions where we are comfortable, until we, we get there, it's always going to be, you know, kind of a wishy washy situation where you start and then stop, start and then stop. So, Again, for me, it goes very, very much to capacity issues. But in terms of the question you asked around um, what is happening at World Trade Trade Organization, I also think that there's a real challenge there where Mm -hmm. you see that Africa has an opportunity to define what it's, not just define its position, because claiming and defining a position is one thing, but working towards making sure that that happens is another thing. So if you're not producing enough and you're not having enough quality and you're not having enough standards and measures to ensure that you're part of that market. However much you claim will not happen. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's still a lot that is happening around failure to, to claim that stand in appropriately and really worrying so much more about, yeah, this is my share, but what, what gets you to that share? I would love to be able to say this is my share because mm-hmm. I can also put stuff on this, this market and competitively do so. But I think we get lost in fighting for those shares and forget that there are real policy decisions that have to be made around the kind of instruments we need to be able to be in that space. So I am waiting for that day because there's, that war would be an interesting war if we have the capacities okay. to be able to be part of it. Good. do it.
3: Yeah. Just just quickly. Um, mm-hmm just talking about trade and the importance of regional bodies, in West Africa, there was an, ag- an agreement, a West Africa regional agreement, specifying no more than three checkpoints for transit cargo. That's wonderful, but now, of course, it has to go down at the country level again. Um, and so really, uh, in Togo, a, a group of private sector uh, players got together and had an advocacy campaign and brought the uh, Minister of Security and Civil Defense to go see sort of how hard it was to go up and down Togo with some cargo. And um, I think this was really eye-opening for him. And because of this trip, um, it was th- this issue was first raised with this regional agreement. Uh, then he, you know, some really active people got him out there. And he decided to make some changes. And they were able to reduce sort of the number of checkpoints and take the, number, the amount of time it took to go up and down Togo from four days down to one day. So I think that this is, I mean, it's important to sort of elevate issues. But again, the, the decisions have to be made at the country level. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Agreed. In the interest of time, we're going to take one final question, which is never enough, right here. The guy in the yellow tie.
7: Hi, good morning. I'm Emilio Bunge from Development Finance International. I work with a number of agribusinesses, medium and, and large, in a lot of these issues, and a proud member of CCA. So a shout to Pat here. I guess my question is I want to push this notion of, of um, agriculture as a business. Because at the same time, we don't want to perpetuate poverty, and if we're always thinking of smallholder farmers, you know, even if we increase their income three times, they're still making, you know, instead of $2 a day, $6 a day. And so uh, uh, how are we thinking, you know, there is a transition, but no developed economy has agriculture of more than 5 or 10 percent of their GDP, so uh, how long-term are we thinking to solve those issues in terms of, you know, non-farm jobs, uh, and then resolving the tension of, you know, food access that you were talking about, what are the price of food? As we increase, you know, uh, the the incomes of the farmers and you know the incomes in in the food chain, how that translates into consumer prices? Are they willing to pay more? Thank you.
2: Pat. Okay. (laughs) So, so I I look at I I look at this this issue along the whole value chain. I'm not. If you just talk about farming, then yes. But if you look at the processing sector, I mean, look at the United States. Look how big our agri sector business is. We have. Uh, general mills we have Kellogg's we have all of these companies that are in that processing uh, mode if Africa moves toward that kind of agribusiness model and they can there's nothing that prevents them from doing it then you're not talking about uh, you're talking about a very sophisticated and modernized system that uh, is very inclusive of 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 all the sectors of the value chain and the farmers income here certainly is not two or three dollars a day so it's an evolution
0: Mm -hmm. great thanks thank you so much for our panel today I just want to make a couple of closing remarks Um, one is if you haven't looked yet go to the CSIS website we just launched a new website on Tuesday and it is beautiful Um, and when you go to that website look for the global food security project and make sure to sign up for our updates so you can know what else we have upcoming. One thing we didn't get to talk about today, which I would have loved to, but is around benchmarking indexes, because that's something that we're looking at right now. The World Bank released the enabling business of agriculture back in January. It's sort of its second year. Last year was a pilot with 10 countries. This year it's 40 countries. There's been some other indexes in the past. I always say that word wrong, anyway. Thank you. (laughs) Um, We're really looking at that. How can different groups use that? We'll be doing a paper um, and doing an event around that in about a month. So if this topic interests you and that interests you, please continue to stay in touch with us. I also need to make an update around lunch. Now is lunch, a little early lunch, but no one ever minds that. If you want to watch the Ebola documentary, which is really great, i watched the whole thing, it's really fantastic, um, go pick up your sandwich on the concourse, which means that's down the stairs, and go to room C115 for if you want to watch the documentary. Otherwise, go grab your lunch and you can eat here on the second floor or any of the other concourse rooms downstairs. Thank you so much for coming and to our panel today.
2: Thank you, Agnes. Thank you, coming to Thank Kenya you.